Welcome to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. This podcast hopes to inspire everyone to realize their own greatness, maximize their potential, and create massive impact. Let's do this. Jerry Schiller, or Mr. S, was the school principal of Glen Waverley Secondary College, a highly competitive public school between 2004 and 2018. This means that he was the principal when clowns like Dr. G and Buddhima attended the school. The Soul for Greatness podcast explores how we can all create an impact with our lives. Mr. S has undoubtedly left a long trail of impact. He would have seen literally thousands of students pass through the gates of Glen Waverley Secondary College. If you look at his LinkedIn profile now, it's essentially a catalog of him supporting and showing pride in the achievements of past students. When I approached Mr. S about the podcast, I asked him whether there is anything that he wouldn't want to talk about. His response, I'm not precious about anything. I used to give it, so I'm happy to take it. If you guys want to take the piss at my expense, go for it. As soon as he said that, I knew this is going to be a really, really fun episode. Buddham and I are beyond excited to have a fun and simultaneously meaningful conversation with Mr. Schiller, now as adults, sort of, sort of. It is with (laughs) utmost gratitude that we welcome Mr. Schiller to the Soul for Greatness podcast. Welcome, Mr. Schiller. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It is indeed an honor after all these years to reconnect with well, let's face it, two of the finest students that have ever come out of the Waverley <laughs> Secondary College <laughs> and leading very successful lives. And nothing warms my heart more than seeing our former students achieving great things in their lives. That was why we were there. And it's a measure of whether we were successful or not. And I think you two, I see success. So thank you for inviting me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, no, again, like we, we appreciate you for being here with us today. And I kind of wanted to get the conversation started on a, on a lighter note, but I've got a question for you, Mr. Schiller. So I think a common thing within our podcast is um, I have aspirations to become a future CEO, but I wanted to ask you, in your experience, what is the likelihood of a student that has been caught smoking in the toilets going on to become a CEO? I, I suspect that that is the, exactly the person who has the right sort of quality <laughs> to go on and become a CEO. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, don't, I, I know that I never looked for that in people's resumes, but <laughs> if I had seen it, I would have seen it as being a plus. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and you're a disgrace, by the way. I'm, I'm appalled to hear that. <laughs> if only you could tell my mum that. <laughs> I think that would be not the disgrace part, but the, with the definitely the stuff, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have what it takes. <laughs> yeah, thanks. 
<laughs> yeah. But they've done a lot of growth since then, right, Budima? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yep. <laughs> it's nothing, nothing but um, growth from there. There is one driver on that, of course, and that is having given up smoking. Otherwise, you're not going to live long enough to become a CEO. Yes. But I assume, being an intelligent young man, that that is all in your past. Yeah, yeah. Those days are long behind me. But um, yeah, no, we wanted to get the conversation started on a lighter note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so on a slightly more serious note, <laughs> I'm curious, Mr. Mr. Schiller, I think the amount of interest there is in this episode from all our friends is incredible because when we tell them we're interviewing Mr. Schiller, they, they're excited because they, it, it just brings back so many memories, such an important part of our life. And we actually have some questions from them and, and we'd like to run it by you. And of course, our own questions to see what it's like to actually, through the eyes of a, a principal or a former principal. The first question is, Almost on the back of what Buddhima just said, like I think school is catered for a particular type of learner. I think the type of learner that I am, essentially, like I was extremely good at reading and memorizing and passing tests and doing quite well. But then there are other types of learners that don't learn that way and don't show their greatness in that way necessarily at school. Especially if you use the enter score as or the ATAR now as the metric. They might feel like they're not good enough even, you know, or they're not reaching their potential or something's wrong with them. How do you conceptualize that? Because I'm sure you would have seen different types of learners, different types of students. How do you look at those type of students and say like, and maximize their potential and bring out the best in them or bring out the best in everybody? Well, that was very important to me that we be in an inclusive environment. And there's no doubt that Glen Waverley is a exceptionally high-functioning academically school. And that presented great opportunities for a lot of students, but huge challenges for some others who felt maybe they didn't measure up to that. We did a lot of work. And when I say we, I'm talking about the leadership of the school and the teaching staff around developing approaches to teaching that were inclusive and would enable all students to achieve and to never give the impression to anyone in a classroom that because they weren't, you know, getting 95% for a maths test that they were a lesser person or a lesser learner than someone else. We also encouraged all of our students to stay on to year 12 and there are a lot of students who were not highly academic, who did stay on to year 12. And we offered a range of subjects that they could achieve some success in and did. And a number of students who've gone on to be very, very successful in fields that, let's say, trade-related, did stay on to year 12, whereas in another school they may not have. And then I think that was important to me because I wanted to have a school that everybody could feel that they we're a part of and we're encouraged to stay. I know that there are some other high-functioning academic public schools that did not encourage certain students to stay on. In fact, I know of schools that actively went about excluding them. 
saying this is not the school for you after year 10, I think you should try something else. I hated that as a person. It's something that I'm proud that we were trying to be inclusive around. Having said that, there are a whole lot of students. At the end of the year when the um, ATARs came out, it was always a sort of a festival of, of celebration. But the school was so successful in generating those scores that lots of students who got an ATAR around the mid-90s felt, heavens, I thought I've done really well, but compared to all my friends, I'm the lowest ATAR there is. And I particularly relate to that because a couple of my own children were like that. They did very well. I was very, very proud of them. And they got mid-90s ATARs in spite of being lazy. And so... (laughs) 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 And then they sort of looked around and thought, wow, this is incredible. So there's always that danger. I was was aware of it, but it was sort of part of the fabric of the school. There are some things you can do something about and there are some things that are are just there. And um, I think we survived all of that. I don't know whether that answers your question, but it's my answer. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I think yeah. lazy people are the people to look out for, aren't they? I'm going to yeah. find very creative ways to get through things. It's also interesting that at the school there were, there were students who very highly focused from a very early age and, and always wanted to be high achieving. And that was often a, a function of their family being extremely aspirant and encouraging and maybe in some cases a bit too domineering. But then there were other students who around, you know, especially year 8, 9, 10, who, and especially boys, not necessarily exclusively boys, but boys would probably be 70 to 80% of these students who weren't that engaged in school and who weren't doing that well. But when they got into year 12, the penny dropped or they realised, okay, the big game's on here, I better extract a digit and do some work. And they did very well. And they did very well because of two reasons. One is they were sort of drawn along in the mainstream of students for whom not achieving was, you know, we're at school, why would you not achieve? But secondly, they were, they were smart and they had done enough so that when the, when the big game did arrive, they were more or less ready. And I was also, I was always extremely pleased to see those students who teachers were shaking their heads at when they were in year nine, showing those teachers just what they were capable of was a terrific thing. Hmm. What is the purpose of school from a principal's point of view? I think for me, when I was going through school, I thought I was getting into medicine. That was the, that was the game I was playing from very early on, probably as early as year seven. That was a function of school for me. But in retrospect, I think that's probably number three on my list. Number one was just meeting some incredible people. One of them's co-hosting this podcast with me many years later. (laughs) And number two, I think in retrospect, was to keep me incredibly busy so I didn't have time to do anything silly. And number three was academics. But what do you think, Mr. Schiller? What's what's the purpose of school? Like, why does it, especially high school, why does it exist? And one of the things that I used to say at the end of every year at presentation night, when 
there are a lot of students and a lot of parents in the place is, and we were celebrating, you know, great achievements because it's the end of the year. But I always make the point that if we were a school who could only produce students capable of getting good tertiary entrance scores, then we were selling ourselves and society short. And the most important thing that we had to do was prepare people for their place in the world. And what I wanted to do was see our students go out into the world and make a difference for the world to be a better place because they're in it. That, to me, was the important thing about school. From the point of view of parents, selecting a school, and I used to say when we had our you know, grade six orientation night, thank you for choosing Glen Waverley. I'm the father of four children. I understand as a parent just how important this decision is for you, and we will not let you down. And one of the main reasons that they had chosen Glen Waverley was because they wanted their child to be situated in a peer group that they felt confident about. They wanted good people around their children who were not going to lead them astray, apart from the occasional fag in the dunnies, is one of the most important things about it. So the, you, you were lucky in a sense, both of you, to have a really great peer group around you. And, yeah, look, I, I think that's one of the great strengths of Glen Waverley, that you had that and it, and it benefited you. And in a sense, the, the main purpose of school is to socialise young people. Of course, the academic, you know, that's, that's part of it. That's If you're a batsman in a cricket team, your, your main job is to make runs. But, you know, if you're a, a good team person, you contribute a lot more than just that. And I think that's what school is like, you know, that, that it is growth. If you think about it, that when I think about six years of being a principal at Glen Waverley went like in a flash, but six years of being at secondary school for me, that even at the tender age of 71, seems like an enormous part of my life. Mm. So you know, the, the journey through adolescence from 12 to 18 is hugely important. You are impressionable and you are learning so much. And it's a time in your life when you stop learning. No, you don't stop learning. Up until 12, your parents have been a huge influence on you and what you know and what you learn. At around about the time you enter secondary school, your peers become the dominant influence on you. There's no doubt about that. And I used to say that to parents. I said, get over it. Parents and principals are running a distant third, fourth, and fifth or whatever behind the peer group. And so having a good peer group is just gold for a parent. Yeah, that I, I completely agree. Like the people that you choose to have around you, they, they do form a very, especially part of your formative years. Yeah. I have a question around the same lines as that, Mr. Schiller, which was now you was talking about um, the efforts that parents can take, but it's around like just yourself as a parent as well. What can you do to supplement the education that they're getting, uh, that your kids are getting from secondary school or school 
And how can you set them up for success, you know, around the other skill sets that they'll need to develop once they leave school? What can you do as a parent to encourage that? Because they may not develop the skill sets that they need to succeed outside of school. Or as a school, right? Not just the parent. How can the school play that role? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very, very good question. And I think there were probably parents uh, at Glen Waverley who didn't help in that they were focused on the academic outcomes at the expense of the socialisation. And so uh, it used to be a funny thing. I'd come back to school after the holidays and you'd see all these joyful faces of you know kids in year seven and year eight coming into the school they were so relieved the holidays were over they come back to school where they had a life Um, you know having your child go through the year seven maths book over the holidays is not the way to go trusting them to go out and play with their friends however much some parents find that a bit of a challenge allows them to grow and to learn a lot of those skills. And at school, we wanted to encourage that too. We wanted to, we had an emphasis on encouraging the kids to work together collaboratively, to work creatively, to build their communication skills, those sorts of things. You know, I saw students get into medicine who had very few of the interpersonal skills that I thought you really need to be a great doctor. You know, they they were extremely bright and hopefully they had a chance to learn those skills eventually, but they didn't necessarily have them when they left school. I saw others who were, I was thinking, boy, that I'm, I'm glad so-and-so got into medicine, they will make a great doctor because they had been involving themselves in other things at the school. You know, they had played in the you know, netball team or the, being a school captain or being a sports captain or something like that. In other words, they had done things which required them to interact with other people and to perhaps you know, be leaders and to give advice and encourage and be kind to other people. Those are the things that I really sort of valued in students far more than their ability to get that 95% on the math test. Yeah, it, I found it really interesting, your, the, the use of language, because you were saying that you were trying to foster or, or we were trying to foster a particular culture, Glen Waverley Secondary College. But I'm interested to learn, like, what were your ambitions when you came into the school and coming into the role? Because you, you were talking about your experience at, at primary school. You know, there's six years, they went by very fast for you, but... In terms of taking that step from primary to secondary, what were your aspirations when you stepped into the role? And like, do you think you were successful in in achieving those? Well, that's interesting. I was not an ambitious person. I started off at university doing a a different thing and I decided, no, it's not for me. And I only really did it initially because I I could, because I'd done well at school. And I'd always been interested in teaching and I thought I'd like to try it. And I did it for a few years and didn't really like it. Then I went to a very challenging inner suburban high school and it was so different from Glen Waverley, this school. The students were extremely challenging to teach. 
but they were in many ways very, very warm if they knew you had an interest in them. I loved that school. I was at it for 12 years and it was a wrench to leave and I did it because I wanted to try a different sort of environment to teach in. But it was where I found myself as a teacher. At that time, if you'd asked me if I was ever going to be a principal, I would have just laughed because the principals I'd worked under didn't really have anything to do with students, and which is what I loved about my job. And in fact, they were sort of acting as instruments of the government and, and it was more about oppressing teachers and getting more work for less pay. So I came in, I ended up at Glen Waverley, came to Glen Waverley as a teacher just to, on a transfer and did a lot of work in student management. I was head of middle school for a, quite a few years and then pretty much had my arm twisted when an assistant principal position came up at the school and I did accept that. And I was I was sort of a long way into my career then. I'd been teaching for well over 20 years. And the principal, who was Daryl Fraser, was the principal of the school when you guys started. Yeah. And he eventually got a promotion to actually lead the entire Victorian school system. And that created an opportunity at Glen Waverley. And a lot of people were coming to me and saying, you have to apply. I wasn't that keen. I was not something that I aspired to do. And then one day I was having a conversation with one of my friends on the staff and he said, what if somebody gets the job and they're really, really terrible and you hate working for them? And I thought, I don't want that. I do not want that. <laughs> so I applied. And um, presumably no one else did because they appointed me. Um, <laughs> yes. At that point, I didn't have a plan. I liked what was happening. Daryl Fraser was a extremely talented educator. And he'd set things up. And, of course, I'd worked with him for four years, so I'd been very much a part of developing the, the sort of culture and approach to education and learning that we were on about. And I just built on, on that. And over time, I guess that just continued to evolve. I learned more. The staff were continually involved in professional learning, and that was not happening at other schools at that time. And so... I think that we were getting better and better and the school was achieving great things. So in a sense, I was lucky. I took over a high-functioning school and hopefully people looking at my legacy would say that I built on that and the school continued to flourish throughout my time. But it was not in answer to your question, Budama, it was not something that I sort of set down and planned. It was something that grew out of my experience and I was able to build on. I was always, as a teacher, fanatical about my students achieving and not only the students who were really bright in my class because I taught legal studies and often you would get students who were not highly academic and I would say to them, you can do very well in this subject, okay? Number one, you have the best teacher and number two, you are <laughs> going to do far more work in this subject than any of your other subjects. And if I hear that you've been wasting your time 
on English or mathematics when you should be doing legal studies, you'll have hell to pay, okay? Just remember, this is all about me, okay? They, they would get that. Uh, but it worked, and it worked because eventually, because they realised that I was only half joking, they better do that work, uh, yeah. and we did very well. I think then I sort of took that when I was principal, I wanted the same thing. I wanted to, and hopefully in my own demeanour and persona, there was always that feeling that there are high expectations at this place. And Glen Waverley was a school that had very high expectations, not only of academic achievement, but in everything else, in, in behaviour and in the way you wore the uniform and in the way you related to one another and in the way you respected your teachers and your peers and in the way that in a very diverse multicultural school, hopefully everyone was valued and everyone who came into the school felt like they fitted in and they were part of it. And all that, that what I'd call a culture of the school, I really, really liked and, and I did foster it and I was proud of that part of the school. Yeah, oh, that's so powerful. Yeah, and I'd like to say um, high expectations. I think from my experience, Glenmore Secondary College had high expectations, but also high standards as well. And rising tide lifts all boats. So, you know, you you work hard to meet those standards. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience. Yes, and, and you don't ignore anything. One of the things that I routinely did as a principal was I would be out and about. I worked in schools where, well, even at Glen Waverley, I know when I was head of middle school, there was a very, very challenging student that we were, you know, I was spending a fair bit of time with and the principal made one of his unusual forays out of his office and found this student in the locker bay, just arrived at school, and asked him what he was doing. And this kid looked at the principal and said, who are you? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I've sanitised that. He he did say <laughs> that, but he did add a couple of words. And so, <laughs> wow. so the principal brought him to me. I thought, well, I'm not ever going to be that principal. I will be out there and, yeah, and I would interact with students and they would know from just the conversations we had what I expected of them and, you know, that was important. And so would other teachers. Other teachers would see that. Don't walk past something and ignore it if it needs to be addressed, ever. Yeah, because if you ignore it, you're reinforcing that that's okay, that behaviour is okay and that's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really powerful there that I want to flag is those little interactions. I've had a few with two teachers in particular that completely, I still remember it. It's been, you know, like 17 years, I think, since, but I, I still remember it. And one was particularly with Mr. Wheaton. I'm sure you remember Mr. Schiller. So he was, he was my maths teacher. And he, and he saw me helping another student with maths. He took me out and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I'm just helping. I'm helping with maths for this, um, this particular person. And he asked me like what I want to do with my life. I said, I want to be a doctor. And he said, I think you'll make a great doctor. 
And those that little moment, probably like a nothing moment for him. But for me, just to have that belief from someone else was powerful. So when you say like you're going, you're telling people to focus on legal studies and you're you're walking around and showing yourself and everyone knows who you are. You don't know which interaction is going to be powerful. So I guess perhaps you just assume that each interaction is powerful and you just keep manifesting the, that those opportunities. So it's kind of cool to me to think like the amount of impact that you don't even know that you've had with those, that type of behavior. I think that is a really, really good point to make. And as a principal, one of the things that you do is you run staff meetings. And so you're talking to the teachers a lot. And that's one of the things I used to say quite often is that you as a teacher do not know just how much of an impact you're making or when. And I used to recount a couple of little stories and and one of them was about a student, and this happened more than once, who came back to see me, say, 10 years after they had left school and they'd say, Mr Schiller, I just wanted to, firstly, I wanted to let you know that I'm okay right, because things when they were at school were not okay. And then they might say something like, do you remember when you said whatever it was to me? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Of course I didn't. Um, (laughs) They did, and that was the important thing. And they said, they would say, that was very important to me, and I didn't take any notice of it at the time, but I have since, and you're right. As a teacher or a principal, you sort of you don't you're not aware of every in every conversation that it might be an important one in the life of a student, but you've got to be aware that some of them will be, and that means that it can go the other way too. And one of the one of the things that you know I, I hope the teachers would be aware of, and I used to make the point: don't put a student down. If you need to tell them there's something about their behaviour or what they're doing that's not right, explain it to them carefully. But don't ever get the impression that you don't think they're a worthwhile human being because they will rem- they might not remember what you said, but they will remember forever how you made them feel. And that's something as a teacher you have to be really, really careful about. Mm. It goes to the point of like if someone does something stupid or, you know, it's the action that's stupid. It's not the person. It's just like. Correct. And they're making that distinction, keeping them accountable, but yeah, making that distinction. And um, as you can imagine, there were many, many times when students were in my office and usually to get into my office, you had to do something beyond normally bad, it had to be pretty bad. And so, you know, young people do make mistakes from time to time and do things which they would regret. And often they'll end up in my office and often they'll end up in my office with their parents and always took that as being a, a really, really good learning opportunity for them. And the most important thing, and one of the things, and I was always aware of this, they had to emerge from that with their self-esteem intact. They had to understand that they'd done the wrong thing. And they had to understand that they were going to be punished for doing the wrong thing. But they were just one of 
thousands and thousands of people their age who'd made a dumb decision and was now suffering the consequences of that dumb decision, and they had to learn from them. And if they were smart, they'd be a better person as a result. And I'd say, don't think that I'm going to hate you forever just because you've made one stupid mistake. Don't think that I didn't make stupid mistakes when I was your age. The important thing now is what you do in response to that. And I, I would, I wanted to do all of that in front of their parents because I didn't want their parents to feel horrible. I just wanted them to say, to have the attitude, okay, I stuffed up. Now I'm going to be punished. I'll accept that punishment and then I'll move on. And I wanted them to understand that that was my attitude. Move on. I'm moving on. I'm not going to be thinking about it. So I don't want you to either. Okay. So it's all about growth, isn't it? It's all about learning and it's all about making a mistake and, and learning not to make it again. That's a very interesting duality there because in school, especially if you think about the academic process, you're penalized for making mistakes on assignments and tests and things like that. Whereas in the real world, mistakes are essential to learn. You know, often you learn through mistakes. And I think the greatest amount of learning that I've had is definitely through mistakes and I've made plenty. I should be very wise by now, but, um, you know, still, still working on it. Yeah. But what do you think about that duality there? Like when, when you talk about the, in the ac- academic space where mistakes are penalized, but then is there room for a bit more forgiveness in academics or, um, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. Um, um, I think that's, yeah, that, that's the, the problem with tests and exams is that that is where the mistake does become a, a huge penalty. And it's, you know, one of the, probably one of the weaknesses of our education system is that we rely on, you know, those sort of summative, what we call summative assessments too greatly. There's a lot of other learning that takes place in a classroom where you can afford to make a mistake and learn from it. In other words, in the preparation for a test or or tests that are preparing you for an exam, it's okay to make the mistakes then because it's not when it's crucial. Um, and in, in that sense, your mistakes, you know, you've made the mistake and you've learned from the mistake and that's fine. But I think schools are certainly imperfect in the way they assess students and of all the things that schools have not been able to move on from in the first couple of decades of the 21st century, it is that reliance on on tests when they're not a part of life. Tests are only ever a part of school and yeah, academic institutions have not been able to find. They have tried. You know, there are lots of other ways of assessment. When I did Year 12, the only assessment that we did were five exams at the end of the year. That was it. The whole the whole of your year was based on five three-hour experiences, which was horrifying for some students and, and really advantageous for others. And so I'd agree with you, Budama, when we should be far more forgiving. Yeah. Perhaps it just comes down to mindset. I think maybe the, the assessments do have a place, but setting the context of, it is a bit of a game. Like you're playing this game and you're seeing if 
if you can do well on the test or well on the assignment, but it doesn't necessarily dictate life. Like, I mean, Buddha and I are a great example. Like I did quite well in my enter score. Buddha didn't do as well on, on base value, like numbers, but he's probably more <laughs> successful than me. You know, like what's the difference? You know, like it's doesn't no, matter. I'll, I'll just put it I'll just put it out there. I have got a report card that not even a mother would love. And and, <laughs> well, and she doesn't. So not a, not a Sri Lankan mother. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, that's that's yeah, I agree completely with that. Um I'm very thankful that when I was being educated that the whole assessment regime was built around examinations because if you played the game right, then yeah, you'd certainly work to your advantage. But you know, I taught so many kids over the course of many years who just did not know how to play the game that I always felt sorry for them. And yeah, I think you've got to find a, a, a bit of a mix of different ways of assessing people that doesn't penalise people and. Yeah, look, the world is full of people who didn't do great at school, who've done brilliantly in their lives. So, yeah, school suits some people and not others. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, and I think, is there a way that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what works well or what you've, in your experience, what may work well to kind of bridge that gap or something that you may have observed that's worked well? Well... It's pretty much, I blame the universities, that we've always had this school system which is geared towards identifying who's going to get into medicine, law, architecture, whatever it happens to be, at the expense of virtually everybody else in society. And uh, it would be great if the universities just worked out their own way of deciding who they were going. And Melbourne University has done it in, in you know, the sense that they've made those high-profile courses, post-grad courses, I think that's really good. If yeah. schools could be released from having examination systems and entirely and focused on forms of assessment that work best depending upon the subject or area that you're dealing with. If your interest is doing art, then doing a written examination is not as good a way of assessing whether you're a good artist as what you actually produce as an artist. And the same can be said for lots of other areas of endeavour. I think that we've got to have such a narrow focus in schools that historically we can't see beyond it and develop the alternative approaches that the community accepts are viable and acceptable. But that's a challenge for future educators. <laughs> I, think, I think one of my favorite quotes that I have been, I reflect on regularly is not to let school get in the way of your education. <laughs> and I think school, I definitely, school was school for me. But then in retrospect, I, I saw the education, you know, what you describe, you know, meeting the right people, staying out of trouble. I think I, I wasn't geared at the time to do much leadership stuff or you know, school captain and house captain. Stuff didn't really make sense to me at the time. But now looking back, I, I would have loved to. It would have makes a lot more sense to me in, in retrospect. 
I think that that's right. I mean, the, the problem, of course, I always felt at Glen Waverley was that we had thousands of students, you know. We, we, most of the time I was principal, we had around about 2,000 students, sometimes more. And how many of those leadership roles can you create before they <laughs> stop being leadership roles and just being everybody? <laughs> and so that's what I, you know, used to say to, to the students at assemblies sometimes is, you may not have a leadership role, but there will be times in your life when you do have to be a leader. And it can be at school, it can be in a sporting club, it can be with your friends or it can be with your family. But there will be times when you have to step up and everybody needs to be developing leadership skills to get them ready for those times because they will come in your life. They will come. On that note, Mr. Schiller, I know you've done. I mean, you've been a leader for literally decades and you've done a lot of coaching, like you've developed a lot of leaders, but you've also done a lot of training to become a better leader. Do you have any particular advice for us on how we can become better leaders and what leadership actually means to you? I think probably best answer to that is to find people who you connect with and who you respect and who you learn from. I've been to, you know, over the course of my years in leadership positions, so many conferences and I sat through so many sessions with people who were basically uninspiring but who had a, you know, had developed a whiz-bang presentation or something like that. But every now and again you'd find someone in your life and you might, you know, you were talking about Mr. Wheaton. It's that sort of person who you might learn maths from, but you learn a whole lot of other things from besides. I had a couple of teachers myself like that, and I had a couple of people that I worked with in schools that I learned from a lot. And it was those interpersonal reactions, sort of relationships that, impacted upon me, that changed me. Um, you know, other than that, what you do is you continue to put yourself in learning situations. And for me, one of my great loves is reading. And I have read all my life widely. And occasionally I would come across something that was really worthwhile reading in terms of leadership development. And it might not necessarily be in relation to leadership strategies or anything like that. I personally found those sorts of volumes not that helpful. But sometimes you just come across ways of viewing the world or dealing with people or understanding people that help you understand how to be better at your job. And they're the so you keep looking for opportunities. And I think it's a very individual thing. Some people seem to be incapable of learning anything and some people <laughs> some people just soak it up. Uh, yeah, but if you can find an individual or a mentor or somebody who you think, uh, they're really, really wise, I want to be like them, that's really magic. Mm. It's like a recurring theme, isn't it, with the mentorship, coaching? <laughs> Yeah, it's something that we hear a lot from from our guests, plus also, you know, people that we admire and, and that we look up to. Yeah. 
any particular book recommendations? What do you like reading? No, no. And often it's not, <laughs> often it's not a book. I can remember as a young teacher, someone recommended a book to me and um, it was all about language and the use of language. And I had sort of been through school. My strength at school was anything to do with writing. I would always, you know, if I wrote an essay, I would, I would normally, you know, get praise. And so I developed a sort of an approach to understand, understanding writing and language that was extremely narrowly focused. And in my first year, few years of teaching, I probably used a lot of words in the classroom and half the kids in the classroom did not understand. This book that I can't remember the name of explained how that is, if you want to be a really bad teacher, you keep doing that. And that way, <laughs> you know, uh, the 10% of the kids in your class will really benefit from what you're doing and 90% won't. And I thought, well, 10% is not a pass mark for me. And I immediately changed that. And it, and it just changed, you know, I was at that difficult school, a lot of kids from migrant families, they didn't have the same, they didn't grow up with books like I grew up with. And I, but I immediately thought, yeah, I've got to get better at this. I have to be able to connect with them. I have to make them, I have to find some way of ensuring that they understand what I'm talking about. I'm not just going to teach a body of knowledge and test it. And if they pass, well, good for them. If they fail, well, it's not my fault. That was, you know, one of the big revelations for me as a young teacher and I became almost overnight a much better teacher because of it when I was very much tuned into my students' understanding of what we were doing from then on. And so and that was probably one chapter of one book and so I wouldn't even try to suggest a book to anyone You've got to do your own reading and, and talking to other people about what they've read, especially, you know, what I read 20 years ago may not be relevant to what you you are doing now, what people your age are doing now, where it's, you know, you're a really critically important part of your learning journey, which is ongoing but never stops. Yeah. I recall, like, you earlier saying that, you know, you're talking about your legacy as well. I'm interested to hear about what you think the legacy, like your legacy would be at GWSE and what GWSE's legacy would be when the history book of the school is written. I think it evolves over time. When I first went to Glen Waverley, there were a a sizable sort of traditional white Australian population and a small but growing Chinese population. And that was early 90s. By the time you guys came into the school, that had evolved. The Chinese and other Asian part of the school had grown, but we were also attracting a lot of kids of Indian and Sri Lankan background by that stage. And it sort of changed the nature of the school in that the 
Chinese, Indian and Sri Lankan kids tended to be extremely focused and quiet and attentive and perhaps a bit too submissive in class. And I used to talk to teachers about that and, and say, okay, these kids have a lot to offer. We've got to make sure that they have a voice in the school. And I can remember back in the very early days when I was head of middle school, even getting the kids of Chinese background to stand for the middle school council, which was something I created and really wanted to promote, was hard because they wanted to stay in the background. Now, as the school evolved and became more multicultural, that changed and changed completely so that, you know, by the time 2007 came around, there were the leadership profile, student leadership profile of the school matched the cultural profile of the school, which was exactly what I wanted. It means that everybody then felt included and so on. So in a sense, we had a school that was situated in a community that was actually servicing that community, I thought, really, really well. And that was one of the reasons that the school was extremely popular and everyone wanted to get into the school. And And one of the major difficulties I had was working with my assistant principals to sometimes prove that people lived where they said they were living. <laughs> and and, and um, I could tell you a few interesting stories about that too. Did you go door knocking? I did, yes. In in person? Seriously? I did, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I had a family that was trying to get into the school and I knew that they were not living in the house that they were living in and I had a couple of conversations with the father of the family and he insisted that they were living there and he said, you can ring my principal of my child's primary school they will back me up. So I did. I rang the principal and the principal said, yes, I know this family and I know they're living at the address they gave you. I said, right, okay. So I went round there and I knocked on the door and this guy answered the door and he was—he actually was a teacher at Wesley. And <laughs> I said that I was looking for such and such a, a person. He said, well, I don't live here. And I said, how long have you been here? And he said, well, I've been living here for five years. And I said, well, I guess, I suppose if this family was living here, you would have noticed, wouldn't you? (laughs) Mm, Um, Yeah. 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 So then I went back and I rang the principal and told him the story. He was somewhat embarrassed, I think. (laughs) And, yeah, there were were similar stories to that. Yeah, but that's a whole other. That was an interesting challenge of of my principalship was dealing with those issues. Yeah, which has taken us away from legacy a bit, but I don't know how to answer that and I don't have any idea how to describe my own legacy. Hopefully on my tombstone they'll write, Principal of Glen Whaley Secondary College didn't do too much harm. Ah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it kind of goes back to your, your, your second answer, which was around if you just created a school or if you just created an environment that just churned out, you know, high ATAR individuals, then you saw that as a failure. And I think what you're trying to do is empower and create the next generation of 
people that would go on to be successful in their in their lives and in their careers, you know, not necessarily just academically, but successful in no matter what they do. So I would like to think that would be the legacy. Yeah, I, I would agree completely with that. And I think that the school has been enormously successful in achieving that in what I see. I went to a reunion just a few months ago, the five-year reunion of the class of 2016, which was a six-year reunion because I couldn't have it after five years. So it was interesting because they were, they were six years down the track, apart from a couple of unfortunate souls who were doing medicine and still studying, they were all finished and they'd started their jobs. And every young person in that room was doing something that you think, well, that's just fantastic, you know. And, yeah, look, if if that's the legacy, then, yeah, I'd be happy to live with that. That's, that's as good as it can be. Oh, yeah, I think you've done much more than not do harm. I think you've, uh, yeah, I mean, two of those legacy pieces are sitting right here in front of you, right? Like you don't, <laughs> yes. you can't quite put your finger to what that legacy is, but you can, you can see it in all the, all the people you've had an impact on directly or indirectly. If I was, if there was any one thing that would make me proud of what I've done, it is seeing that students who've gone through the school have been successful. And if that was what we were intending to do and that's what we achieved, well, then that should be the measure. Mr. Schiller, I have an important question to ask, which I'm sure will lead to a very meaningful conversation, a little bit more of a, much more of a serious question that was actually asked by a different alumni is... I absolutely loved my time in, in Glenny at Glenny Secondary. But there were a few unfortunate, I guess, times when we lost people, you know, through to suicide. A handful of people, you know, once too many. And of course, it's hard for the students. I'm curious, like, what's it like sitting in, the, in leadership as the teachers and the principal and the, all the leadership? How do you conceptualize that? And also going forward, it seems like mental health in that adolescent age group is getting worse. What can be done? There were three or four times during my tenure where we lost students, three to suicide. There were a couple who died of of cancer and... There were a couple of times when former students died. They're the hardest times of my career, was leading the staff and students through those events. They have to be very, very carefully managed. You've got to do a lot of careful communication because you don't know how people are going to be affected. Teachers who taught students can be very, very seriously affected. You have to alert your whole parent body to the fact that this event has occurred and that will impact on their child. And then, you know, you've got lots of kids in the school who didn't know the student who aren't going to be very much affected at all, apart from, you know, thinking, oh, that's terrible. But then you've got close friends of that person who can be very, very damaged. 
and need high levels of support. The department, the education department was very good in that they would assemble very quickly a team of psychologists to come into the school to support everybody who needed to be supported and they were well versed in setting up the structures that you needed in order to give the students an opportunity to come to terms with what had happened and without going into the detail I think we managed things pretty well. They were also they would also constantly ask me are you okay are you okay in other words me personally because you sort of carry a bit of a burden around it uh, and I was always okay I think I always felt supported and in addition to those kids who, who we lost we always had students that were at grave danger and who you know we had kids on suicide watch we had kids who would disappear and go into secure mental health facilities from time to time. And I used to go and, well, a number of those students I visited and they were awful places that, that were to go to. They were intimidating. I don't know how anybody going to one of those places would actually improve, um, recover. But often, that you know, a lot of their treatment was pharmaceutical rather than environmental, I guess. And how you address it, I don't know, because it does seem to be getting worse. And, yeah, in terms of it was interesting because when I would talk to colleagues at other schools, they realised that Glen Waverley was a very orderly environment, that, we, that I, as a principal, didn't have to deal with the student behavioural issues that they had to deal with and I would sometimes be asked, you know, it must make your job easier. And and I would always say, scratch the surface of the school and you will find things that are happening which make it far less comfortable. And in a school of 2,000 students, you walk around and it's a really happy place. You know, the school is the school is vibrant. The kids are interacting. They're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. Out of those 2,000, there might have been 50 who were in a terrible place and you didn't notice those. But we did have good support staff. The school was entitled to a psychologist for three days a week and on top of that I would use the money that we were given in voluntary payments by parents to hire another psychologist five days a week and, a, and another worker a couple of days a week and also our school nurse and we had a great well-being area that kids could go to when they needed to get out of class because they cope with it or whatever. Yeah, how do we deal with it? We could barely cope with supporting those students. As for curing the mental health ills of society, I don't have sufficient understanding about it to be able to answer that question, but I know that as a community we don't put anywhere near the amount of resources into dealing with it that we should. And the same thing goes for child welfare, child well-being, you know, child services. We knew that there were kids at home who were vulnerable and often being mistreated and getting any support was extremely difficult and got more difficult as 
my time in the role went on that it seemed like there were fewer and fewer resources and the people in child protection, they had to prioritise. Is this child going to be hit with an axe if it goes home tonight? Well, if it is, then we better not let it go home. But, you know, if it's something less than that, then we don't have the resources to deal with that one. You deal with it. Well, it's very, very difficult. So I would say the only answer that I could give about how we deal with uh, both child protection and mental health, and often those two things are very, very, very closely related, is poor resources, community resources into it. We don't even have the people who are trained to deal with it. We need to do that. Doctors must see this, Gihan. They must see it. And then how, in a professional sense, do you deal with that? Is there, unless there are resources that you can call on, I mean, you can't do it yourself. At the end of the day, you know, you've got to go home and look after your own family. You can't look after someone else's. So, Somebody has to be there to be able to deal with it. And then how do we deal with the people who are already damaged and need support if we don't have the people who are trained to do it in sufficient numbers? So, yeah, look, if there's one thing I would advocate, it is we spend some of that taxpayers' money on building the resources that the community needs in order to deal with it. Yeah, I think you're spot yeah. on, Mr. Schiller. The, I mean, from a from a GP's perspective, I've made a few calls to child protection and the department. And often it's, number one, it's, it's like very slow process, very slow, tedious process. And number two, they, the response that I often get is, yeah, like, like you just said, it's not severe enough for us to do anything just yet, but we'll take note so we can build a case. That's often what they say, they build a case. And then once the case is strong enough, then we can intervene. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think we didn't necessarily expect you to have an answer. I think we just think it's a important conversation to have. And I think it definitely triggers something in me. I think, I think the biggest thing it, that I struggle with is, is it's not always, often not obvious. You know, people, you just don't know. Yeah. People can say they're great and put up a great face, a very brave face, and then yeah. next minute something happens. You just so I mean to to that point where we were talking about before, I guess from a teacher's perspective, but also from our perspective as students or past students, but and now just treat interact every interaction as if it's an important one because it very well could be. Yeah, exactly right. And it sort of it has to be impacting more and more on schools. And, yeah, look, that's another one of the things I used to talk to the teachers about. And some students will, you, you'll just not know. They'll just completely cover up everything. Other students will talk to somebody, a trusted adult. And I used to say to the teachers, you're not in a position. They choose you. And if they choose you, don't ignore them. Mm. You you may not know what to do. That's okay, but you can seek advice. But if you're the chosen one and they've chosen you to lean on for support, that's hugely important as a teacher. 
and you know it happened it happened to me quite a few times and as a young teacher I didn't even realize terribly well what was happening why suddenly every time I went out into the schoolyard this young person was attaching themselves to my side but over time I became very good at understanding and and recognizing where you had a student who needed help actually providing that help or having the resources in a school to provide that help was somewhat problematic but at least when I was principal at Glen Waverley there were trained people there that you could eventually talk the student and you need to go and talk to Mrs. So-and-so because they're really good at dealing with that. This is their job. My job isn't to do deal with that. Yeah, and sometimes you get told things that you wish you hadn't been told but you can't ignore them. You have to have some way of responding to them and often that's not to deal with it yourself because it's not your area of expertise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Mr. Schiller, I've got a question and it's um, around a TED talk I saw about 10 years ago and it just stuck with me this whole time. The TED talk was by a physicist called Clifford Stoll and he's an educator like yourself as well. He was asked a question, um, what do you think the world is going to be like in 10 years time? And his answer was remarkable. I, I still remember it to this day. He said, don't ask me ask a kindergarten teacher, but an experienced one. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to extend this question out to you. And I always find myself asking this question when I meet educators, you know, like yourself that have had a lot of experience in this area. What do you think the future is going to look like? Well, in 2007, when you two finished year 12, I didn't have an iPhone. Can you imagine <laughs> living your life without a, an interactive device in your pocket? So the, the world in the 15 years, that I mean, that little device has changed society more than anything else in that intervening time. I mean, the exponential growth in the power of technology has been phenomenal. So the, the world that we experienced in 2022 is not one that we could have envisaged in 2007. So I am no Nostradamus and I've got no idea how to answer that question, but it seems to me that the thing that's going to impact on on our lives most significantly in the next decade or two is AI Artificial intelligence is who knows where it's going to take us, but we better be prepared for it because it's going to have probably more of an impact than that little mobile device that we are now so reliant on. And um, how how it impacts on you know the nature of society, how it impacts on people's mental health on their education, on the sorts of jobs that are, are going to be available to people to do in the future, all of those things, yeah, I, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that as <laughs> a principle because dealing with the known 
is hard enough. Dealing with the imponderable unknown is, yeah, that's just a bit too mind-bending. Yeah. Don't ask really, really difficult questions that I can't answer. <laughs> 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 so, Mr. Schiller, we just want to, we just want to thank you. It's just has been great to have a conversation with someone who we couldn't have had this type of conversation, you know, seven. It just, uh, I, I don't think I would have been ready for this type of conversation. No. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> very grateful for your time. And I actually really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you, what you did for us. You know, although you didn't teach a class for me, I could only begin to imagine the amount of impact that you've had on my life without me even knowing, which is a testament to your leadership and your reign, I would call it, <laughs> as, <laughs> as the leader of the best school on the planet, right? So thank you so much. It, it, yeah, it means a lot. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Schiller. It's been great for me to reconnect with the two of you as powerful and successful alumni of, of the school. And, um, yeah, look, I loved being a principal, however reluctant I might have been to take on that job. When I was doing it, I thought, heavens, if I'd known how much I was going to enjoy doing this job, I would have done it a long time ago. So pass that on to any of your peers that you interact with and, and say that, you know, I've got, I derived tremendous joy in going into that place every day. And that came from the students and the great teachers that I had a chance to work with every day. And also, you know, the appreciative parents that I got a lot of positive reinforcement from. So oh, I'm the luckiest person alive to have had the opportunity to do what I did. Amazing. Thank you for listening to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe and share. See you soon.